few points from this particular chapter and some other passages of Scripture. So I'll begin in verse 1 of Nehemiah 8, which again, if you're, if you're just tuning in or you're just, if you're just listening and, and you just came in, it's on page 347 in the Pew Bibles. Nehemiah chapter 8, starting in verse 1. All the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him on his right stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maasai. On his left were Pediah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashum, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam. Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God. And all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites, Joshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Acob, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Measai, Kelita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, and Peliah instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people could understand, could understood what was being read. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks, and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy, because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. On the second day of the month, the heads of all the families, along with the priests and the Levites, gathered around Ezra and the teacher to give attention to the words of the law. They found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded through Moses, that the Israelites were to live in temporary shelters during the festival of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim this word and spread it throughout their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out into the hill country and bring back branches from the olive and wild olive trees and from myrtles, palms and shade trees to make temporary shelters as it is written. So the people went out and brought back branches 
and built themselves temporary shelters on their own roofs in their courtyards, in the courts of the house of God, and in the square by the water gate, and the one by the gate of Ephraim. The whole company that had returned from exile built temporary shelters and lived in them. From the days of Joshua the son of Nun, until that day the Israelites had not celebrated it like this. And their joy was very great. Day after day, from the first day to the last, Ezra read from the book of the law of God. They celebrated the festival for seven days, and on the eighth day, in accordance with the regulation, there was an assembly. Let's pray. Father, thank you again that you have spoken to us. Thank you for what you just said. And may you make it clear by the power and the presence and the ministry of your Holy Spirit. Would you enlighten our minds? Would you illuminate the truth of your word that we would be blessed, that we would be able to feed our souls on your truth and that you would speak to each and every one of us who hears exactly where you know we need to be met at this time. Would you do this at this time, but also as we commit ourselves to reading and meditating and believing and living by your word in private. Would you continue to minister to us as we look to you? We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you can see on the screen, I've entitled this sermon, God's Book of Revival. In a very real sense, what takes place in uh, both the books of Ezra and Nehemiah in a couple of different uh, periods of time is a kind of revival, a sort of revival in the people of God. And in every age, um, you hear people talking about this idea, this concept of revival. You have people who will even... Uh, maybe set up tents or, or have meetings all over the place and they'll call them revivals. So I, I think there's something for us to try and understand about this concept as the church. And if we're honest, I think, and I hope, all of us would honestly say that even though we may not fully understand it, there's something in our hearts that wants a revival. Like that old hymn, Revive Us, O God. Revive us again, as the refrain ends. And I have three points that I want us to, to see from this passage. The first one is this, the priority of the word. Last week we, we looked at um, five attributes of scripture. The fact that based on scripture's own testimony, every word of every, every part of the scriptures is breathed out by God. All scripture is God breathed. And that's the word inspired in some translations. So we saw the first attribute, the inspiration of Scripture. Based on that, the inerrancy of Scripture, since God Himself cannot err or err. To, to, to err is human, or it is human to err, but it is not so with God. His Word is inerrant. Because of these things, His Word is authoritative. It is the final Word on everything it talks about. And not just faith and practice, but anything the Scriptures say about the creation of the world, history, if scripture says something about philosophy, science, anything, 
It is the ultimate authority that trumps every word throughout the ages. We see the inspiration of Scripture. We see the inerrancy, the authority. But Scripture is also clear. We, we thought about the clarity of Scripture. And finally, the sufficiency of Scripture. God's Word is sufficient for His people. We have everything we need for life and godliness right here. Praise God. And because of that, I wanted us to look at this passage in particular to see the practical outworking. A good example of the sufficiency of God's word at work in God's people. And the first thing we see in this passage is the priority of the word. Secondly, the power of the word. That's another attribute of scripture. The transforming power of God's word. And thirdly, the people of the word. And this will be somewhat circular. But don't be thrown off by that. Uh, Don't get sucked into this idea that if reasoning is circular we shouldn't listen to it somebody once said that to me when i was trying to describe the faith and they said well that's circular reasoning i said it it doesn't matter what shape your reasoning is if it's true Um, so we have first of all the priority of the word but before i jump into that by way of background maybe you've never read these two books before i'm reading from nehemiah but um, this man ezra was a scribe and a priest, a teacher of the law and a priest. He's mentioned here a few times in this book, but he actually, according to pretty much every scholar, he's the author of both Ezra and Nehemiah. And these are actually almost the last two books that are written in our Old Testament. In fact, these two books and Malachi are very closely linked uh, in terms of the timeline when God finally stopped speaking through the prophets um, for almost 400 years before John the Baptist appeared. And so the historical accounts that we read in Ezra and Nehemiah are very important to the faith. And the background of these books are that Ezra and Nehemiah are, are giving us a historical account for a hundred and something years or so during the beginning of what is known as the second temple period. You may remember that uh, David was going to build God a temple and he said, no, it's not going to be you. Your intentions might be good there, but that's not my calling for you. Your son is going to build me a temple. And Solomon had built a temple. And over a hundred years before, more than a hundred years before this chapter, the events in this chapter took place and before Ezra and Nehemiah were written, there was a prophecy, actually a number of prophecies, mostly by the prophet Isaiah, who said that um, God's people would end up becoming captive to Babylon. And this has been the, the repeated problem in the people of God throughout the ages. It's the same problem we see in the beginning of time with Adam and Eve. They chose to disbelieve or to be unbelievers in God's word and to believe the word of the deceiver. In that very act, they became unbelievers. At the root of what it means to be human and to be sinful is unbelief. This is why scripture calls us to turn back to God. But Isaiah prophesied that um, just like Jeremiah, you can read this in Jeremiah 25:11. He says, this whole country will become a desolate wasteland 
And these nations will serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. And that was actually written around 597 BC during the reign of Babylon. It wasn't a new prophecy in a sense. It was a repeated reminder. It's a reminder of Isaiah's prophecy that if they chose to continue to not uphold and, and look to God's word and to live by it, God would discipline them. This temple period, the second temple period, comes on the heels of a catastrophic event where Babylon came in and destroyed Assyria. Israel was under the, the reign and the oppression of Assyria and Babylon came and you remember in the book of Daniel, King Nebuchadnezzar, well he came and destroyed Solomon's temple, the first temple. He came and destroyed that. But right after that, this 70 year period had happened and Jeremiah's prophecy, which was spoken around 597 BC, was part of this, uh, during this reign of Babylon, which started around 605. But we see that exact timeline come to an end. That Babylon was holding them captive for 70 years. And then in 538 BC, there's a Persian king named Cyrus the Great. Cyrus the Great conquers and takes over from Babylon. And now Israel is in the hands of the Persians. But unlike Babylon, Cyrus gives a bit of freedom. And so he allows Ezra, and you, you can go back and read this in the book of Ezra, but he gives Ezra permission to go and build the temple of God. And this is what begins the building of the second temple and this second temple period which actually includes the very life of Christ. And you remember in the Gospel of Matthew, when we came close to the end there, we saw this event where Jesus was basically pronouncing judgment on this apostate nation of Israel. And he says, every single stone that you see on this temple, which was actually more glorious than the first in some ways, everything you see here will be undone. And so in 70 AD, the Romans come and take over and bring this temple period to an end. And some of the world events that we see happening today, people are thinking carefully about them because they're trying to understand if some sort of third temple representative of the very end of the end of times is coming. And they're, they're, they're thinking carefully about this. Needless to say, as you can tell, the idea of the temple is central to God's people. That's sort of a bird's eye view flyover of the background of what's going on here. But what we see in this between Ezra and then Nehemiah, who is um, initially a cupbearer for another Persian king after Cyrus named Artaxerxes. Um, and that doesn't just mean that he took care of cups. The job of the cupbearer was to taste the king's drink so that just in case it was poisonous, well, whoever the cupbearer was would hit the dirt, but the king would be fine. Not the nicest job, but they were well trusted. And eventually Nehemiah, who's well loved by the king Artaxerxes, also gets permission to go and rebuild the wall of Jerusalem to protect the, the defense of the people of Israel, the people 
of God. Of course, permission is a strange thing to think about when it's someone that does not love the true God. And so through all of these things, we're also reminded of the sovereignty of God at work. And it doesn't matter where we find ourselves, that we don't need to depend upon any political system to change for God to work in the favor of His people. And boy, yeah, that should be an amen, hallelujah. Because we can't change those things, can we? But our mission is to be faithful to the Word of God. And so, by way of that lengthy introduction, it's just after the, the wall had been rebuilt and the people were starting to, to try and live faithfully that we find ourselves in Nehemiah 8. And on this first point, the priority of the Word, I want you to see how, in contrast to the way that the people had not been prioritizing God's Word, we see some attitudes of people who do begin to prioritize the, the Word. In fact, this book or this law, this book of the law, was referring more than likely to at least the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, the books of Moses. And the laws that are being read and, and put into practice here are from Leviticus, especially chapter 23, where we have a list of all the different kinds of feasts. And at the end of this chapter, we'll get to it, the Feast of Booths, where they would make these little temporary dwellings, these, these little uh, mini tabernacles of their own in a sense to remind them of when God saved them from Egypt and they were sojourners and travelers to remind them that they've always been that to remind them that as the people of God we must not allow our hearts and minds to be fixed like some of our buildings have to be fixed in the ground because this world is not my home I'm just a passing through. And so, we'll see that in a moment. But how do we see the people prioritizing the Word of God? Verse 1 of Nehemiah 8. They came together. The whole assembly. Notice there. All the people assembled or came together as one man. In the square before the water gate. They came together. You've heard it more than once by, not, not myself primarily, but you've heard people from this very pulpit in the opening of our services remind us of a command from God from Hebrews 10.25. Don't be in the habit of not assembling yourselves together as some people are doing. Mark now, that was written over 2,000 years ago. So there's nothing new under the sun. But may it be that if we are struggling with being faithful in these areas, we would find a new attitude. Because if you want to see revival, these are the kind of priorities that you have to see in your own life and in the life of the churches of God. They came together. And what is the purpose and the, the, the focus of their coming together? Again, in verse 1. They told Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded, not suggested, for Israel. 
Bring the book. Bring the book is the cry of the heart of a person, of people who are prioritizing the word. You can go down in these first five or six verses and you'll see a whole list of different priorities. They listened attentively. They, they, they built a platform for the book that was elevated above them so that whoever would read the book. And by the way, this book had been lost in part of their unfaithfulness in the wars and the, the clamoring. They had lost this book and it was in these reforms when the temple and I think it was when the wall was actually being rebuilt that this book was found. And this is a picture of the will of God, the way of God being renewed in the midst of the people through this book of God. They built a platform for the book. Have you noticed that in almost any country you go to, most of the churches that are, let me put it this way, church buildings that have been built over the last three decades, let's say three or four decades prior to where we are now. When you look at the buildings, one of the key things, and in my mind, because we can only speak from our own experience, I'm thinking of some of the churches I went to see in England. In the UK, you see, I remember one of my uncles showing me a, a church building that was 1,200 and something years old. But there's one thing that stands out in all of them. A pulpit, a platform built for the purpose of the book of God, the word of God to be proclaimed, to be heard in the midst of the people. And in fact, some of them are so big, you, you wonder if you could build a small church building inside of them. But the point is, they're, they're large, they're, they're high, because people are saying, this is going to be one of our priorities. You see the priority of the word in these people. And according to, to most accounts, this, this reading, which took place so long, and, and it was such a large area and such a large number of people there, that it took a, a whole host. You saw the, the long list of names, which some of them I could hardly pronounce. They, there was interpreters during the reading giving the understanding of the word. This is also something we need to understand. While liturgy is okay, liturgy has no meaning or power if you can't understand what is being read. There's nothing more honorable or holy to dress in certain garments or to sound a certain way, etc. If the Word of God is not simply and clearly explained. And you see that repeated more than a few times. All age groups are there. They don't give us a specific age, but the ones who apparently weren't there were simply the ones who couldn't understand clear enough. And there's people helping those who could understand to further understand or to be reminded of the things that are being read. The priority of the word. But secondly, we see the response of the people when they hear the word in the power of the word. Look with me at, at verses 9 through 12. Let me just give one more, one more thought or two more thoughts there on that first point. In the priority of the word, this isn't something we can just wake up today or one morning and say, you know what? Priority of the word. 
Boom. We got this down. Tick the box. If you go back to Ezra chapter 7 verse 10, you, you, you get to understand something about this man. It says he, he set his heart to study the law of God and to meditate on it and to do it and to teach it. This was a person who himself had prioritized the word. Not just someone who could quickly get up there and say a few things. Or who could externalize the, the motions of these kinds of services that they were taking part in in Nehemiah 8. And we read Psalm 1 in our responsive reading. Blessed is the man who meditates on his law day and night. He will be like a tree planted by the streams of living water that bears fruit in its season and whose leaves don't wither. But we see the power of this word both prioritized and received in these next verses. Verse 9, first of all, that then Nehemiah the governor Ezra the priest and teacher of the law and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. The first sign of truly receiving the word of God is a kind of brokenness the Lord loves those who are broken and contrite in heart and again we don't want to liturgize that we don't want to just make sure we are sort of trying to be broken and contrite but we want to let God's word so penetrate us that we're, we're not trying to justify certain things in our lives we're not trying to squirm and, and, and wiggle away from the correction that comes from it. In Hebrews 4.12, we're told that the Word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, and it pierces down into our souls for our good. Think of it like a surgeon's knife. A surgeon's knife does not feel good. And we thank God, I, I'm pretty sure, regardless of your stance on things like being medicated, I can guarantee you, we thank God for modern medicine that has things like painkillers because there was a time when the surgeon's knife was felt but even with the most pain the piercing of the surgeon's knife is for your good how much more the word of God and his word does not just go down and take out what's not right it corrects us remember this from 2 Timothy 3.16 for reproof for correction and for training and righteousness. We're told in 2 Corinthians 3.18 that we're being transformed from one degree of glory to another. We're told in Romans 12.1-2 through 2, that we are not to be conformed to this world or the patterns of this world, the ideas or ideologies of this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. This happens by the Word. And this is what the Spirit of God does in the people of God this is what he was doing in these people's hearts they had come to recognize where they'd gone astray but Nehemiah and Ezra say to them and the priests go on to say rejoice and this is actually where that well known verse is found you see it there in verse 10 
Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to, the, to our Lord. Do not grieve. Why? For the joy of the Lord is your strength. But what comes before that joy? Sorrow over sin. And I, I want to say this. In the spirit of personally wanting to see revival in this church, expansion of God's hand reaching into our hearts and bringing more lost sinners into His family and in the lives of every true church. There's some things that I don't have the time to go through in these passages and these verses here, but I just made a list of five or six things here that we see when the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to begin to pierce the hearts of the people of God. Here's some things that lead to revival and that rejoicing. Number one, recognition. Again, recognition. Number two, remorse. Number three, repentance. And we see the people showing all of these things going into the following verses as well. Number four, reformation. What does reformation mean? Well, just think about the word reformation. Reforming. Reforming the way that we think and we see things and we live according to God's word. Not according to anything else but His word. And after those things, it seems to be a pattern in the word of God and in history that after those things comes revival. And again, we have to be careful. I'm not saying it's wrong for people to have revival services, but the Holy Spirit is not a dog on a leash. The third person of the Trinity cannot be wooed. He's the one who does the wooing. He cannot be controlled and we cannot press buttons metaphorically and say, well, now you better come to this particular service because he's going to do some spectacular things, some unexpected and marvelous things that you've never seen. Come quick, make sure you're there on Saturday night because something's going to break out. We, we never see that in the Bible. The men and women in the book of Acts chapter 2, these men and women, they said, bring the book. Did they know they were going to be weeping? No. But the weeping came before the repentance. And the repentance came before the commitment, which leads to reformation. And fifthly, then revival or renewal, which then sixthly leads to rejoicing. And, and this is a sort of a, for lack of a better description, a very introductory case study on this entire theme of revival. In the middle of this time that we're spending looking at the Word of God, we have to see it at work. Which leads me to my final point, the people of the Word. Is this something... It's just the kind of attitude and priority that we have. Are these the end results that we want? In our personal lives, in our families, in our church, in other true churches. Are we content with where we are? Because see, the people of the word, God has a people. And it's not the human race. 
The reason Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again, is because not everyone is a child of God. In fact, the Bible tells us that we're children of wrath who follow the spirit of darkness, who follow the prince of the power of the air. That's Ephesians 2. Read that. Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 3. But we see the people of God and how they respond in these ways. Look again at verses 13 through 18. On the second day of the month, the heads of all the families, along with the priests and the Levites, gathered around Ezra, the teacher, to give attention to the words of the law. They found written in the law which the Lord had commanded through Moses that the Israelites were to live in temporary shelters during the festival of the seventh month and that they should proclaim this word and spread it throughout their towns and in Jerusalem. Go into all the hill country and bring back branches from olive and wild olive trees and from myrtles and palms and shade trees to make temporary shelters as it is written. How does the Spirit of God breathe life into the people of God? There's no new word given here, you notice? What they're doing is looking back to something that was written hundreds and hundreds of years prior. But is it a dead book? No. It is living and active in the hands of God the Spirit. So the people went out and brought back branches and built themselves temporary shelters on their own roofs in their courtyards and the courts of the house of God and in the square by the water gate and the one by the gate of Ephraim. The whole company that had returned from exile built temporary shelters and lived in them. And I want you to hear this carefully. From the days of Joshua son of Nun until that day, the Israelites had not celebrated it like this. And their joy was very great. This doesn't mean this doesn't mean that these ceremonies had never been carried out, by the way. It says like this. It's talking about the, the heart attitude of the people of God. You see, there's, there's biblical accounts of these same ceremonies, the Feast of Booths and all these different things that had actually been taking place for generations. But you know what hadn't been taking place? True spiritual Worship. For hundreds of years, the Israelites had not celebrated it like this. And so they go into the practice now of their hearts being rent, their hearts being torn. Those five or six points, we could add more that I mentioned in the, the second point there. The powerful word of God. See, what was important was not just that they had the temple built right or that they had the national uh, system of governance in place and this big wall to protect them from the enemies. There's an enemy from within that is far greater than any other. It is the flesh. It is a, a dangerous thing that shows itself in many ways. In fact, the Pharisees were not a God-ordained group of people. Shortly after these books were written, after Malachi and his time, and the final prophetic word from Malachi, there was about 430 years 
of silence from God. And it was during that period of time, what we call the intertestamental time, where a new religiosity came to rise up. And the Pharisees and other groups, the Sadducees, all came out of that period of time. But what we see is that the people of the word are those who've come to understand that whether you dwell in a little tent or you've got the most glorious temple building, what is actually important, what matters, is how we receive the word. Our reception of the word and our commitment to the word. And so I just... In closing, I want to ask this one question. What is the main difference between God's people and the world? What should be, according to Scripture, and there's more than one, but what should be the primary distinction between us and those who do not believe in the Word and the Christ of the Word? It should be the Word of God. The main difference between us and the world is that we actually believe that this is the Word of the Lord. And as I said in the beginning, therefore everything it says, especially its primary message, the Gospel of Jesus Christ, is worth living and dying for. The, the evidence of our faith then, like these people, is proven in our priority of the Word, and this shows itself in our homes, in our marriages, in our singleness, in our relationships with friends, if we're professing to be Christians. How are we witnessing for God with our friends? Eternity is coming at any moment. This shows itself in our parenting. This shows itself in our grandparenting. This shows our, our all our relationships, how we carry out our tasks at work, how we shop in the supermarket, how we seek to find a spouse, how we seek to continue friendships, our bank books, our calendars. Our faith is proven in the priority of the word. And as we gather at times like this or don't gather, at times like this, on as we call it the Lord's Day, to prioritize the worship of the risen Christ, to respond to this word. It is shown through the power of the word in our lives as the spirit shapes us and reforms us and revives us according to his truth. And so in light of these things, let me just again encourage all of us Myself, first of all, to be a person, to be a people who commit ourselves this year to the priority of the word. Not just as a resolution, but as a lifelong commitment. This is what distinguishes us from everyone else who does not believe the word of God. This is how it's been from the beginning. Again, there's two kinds of people in this world those who receive this as the living word of God, the living and active word of the living and active God, and those who reject it. 
May our lives speak loudly of where we stand and may God help us to be faithful in the priority of the word, to experience the power of the word and to show what it looks like to be a people of the word for his name's sake. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you again for this opportunity to come together as your people. As we look back in time and in passages and in historical events like this, where we see even a pattern of what we're doing today and a people of every age who are willing to commit themselves for even half a day at times to sit and even to stand under your word. May you convict us and encourage us and further equip us to be what we need to be, to be a people of the word. And may we, through these priorities, may we, by this power, may we experience what true revival is like, starting in the renewing and refreshing of our own souls. And for perhaps someone listening this morning, for the first time, the renewing of their heart, would you take the truth of Christ that this word proclaims? Would you take the truth that you sent him to live a life of sinless perfection and to die on the cross and to be punished for our sin and to rise again victorious because you accepted his perfect offering? May someone be set free from the bondage to sin this morning or whenever they hear this message. And may you make us a people that so prioritize your word that we make it our, our life's mission to share this glorious news of eternal salvation in your son as often as we can until he comes again. Forgive us where we fail and strengthen us to be faithful to the end. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to invite the power of praise at this time back to the front. And if you are able, I'd like to invite you to stand with us to sing the closing hymn from Trinity Hymnal, which is hymn number 699, Like a River Glorious. <laughs>